Minus 15. Respect all, fear none. Into the upper deck. Intensity is not a perfume. Oh, mercy! Five, four, three, two, one. From inside my parents' basement, it is the Masson All Access Podcast brought to you by Marymount University. Visit MarymountSaints.com to learn more about our student athletes and programs today. I'm Paul Mancano. Got a great podcast for you today. A little bit later on, we're going to be talking to Jason Drumheller, who's an artist and graphic designer. He's designed much of the artwork around the concourse at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. Also going to play for you an interview I did with Felipe Alou Jr. back in Sarasota in February. Alou is the director of the Orioles Dominican Academy. But first, we got to continue with our 20 in 20s, highlighting 20 Orioles players in the system to keep your eye on in 2020 and beyond. And for that, I brought in MassInSports.com's Steve Molesky. Now we welcome in Steve Molesky of MassInSports.com, who joins us via Zoom, I'm guessing in between episodes of The Wire. So, Steve, thanks so much for taking your time out to join the Mass and All Access podcast. Yes, but in between, and I added Sports Night to the mix, which is a great show from way back. I love it with Josh Charles. Yeah. Who's a big Memorial fan from Baltimore and uh, started rewatching that again. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan of that show, partly because uh, Aaron Sorkin's a writer on that show. I'm a huge Aaron Sorkin yeah. guy. I've been watching West Wing. That show is awesome. That show was awesome. It's very realistic, too. I mean, they did a lot of background work on you know, what it, what it would be like doing sports center and something like that. And, and the two anchors were really good. And I, I, I really liked it. They had some good storylines. The uh, consultant coming in was uh, her husband, Felicity's husband, yeah. William H. Macy. And so that was pretty cool. And so, uh, yeah, it's some good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It is, it is the quintessential behind the scenes kind of drama on, on what sports center would be like. And it's kind of, I feel like almost a forgotten classic. So glad to hear that that's been added to the repertoire. Uh, I know mixing it up here, Paul. (laughs) Yeah, really. All right, Steve, let's get into the prospect talk because nobody knows the Orioles farm system better than you. I think, uh, we got two guys on our 20 and twenties this week, two guys that I think Orioles, Fans are very familiar with their names, at least. Um, they got a taste of Hunter Harvey in September, obviously, to great success. And uh, Ryan McKenna, they a guy that they've been hearing um, about for several years. He's been in that mix in terms of outfield prospects that is a, a very large group in the Orioles system with guys like Neil Diaz, Austin Hayes, obviously, coming up. But McKenna, it feels like ever since he was drafted out of high school, uh, in the fourth round out of New Hampshire years ago, has always been kind of in the mix, at least, of the Orioles' top 10, top five prospects. He's a well-rounded player. I mean, he brings uh, almost all five tools, maybe not the power element, but, I mean, he's a plus fielder. He's got a pretty good arm. He runs really well. He can steal some bases. Uh, he's kind of that prototypical center fielder leadoff type, you know, number one or two hitter. And so the Orioles uh, clearly like Ryan McKenna because he added him to the 40 man. They don't do that to be nice or, you know, it's not a participation award. You better be able to play. So, yeah. uh, you know, the one interesting thing is Ryan a couple of years ago in Frederick starts off hitting 370 <laughs> about mid year. I mean, it wasn't like a hot two weeks. He was rolling. Then he went to Bowie, fell all the way to 239. 
Then he went to the Arizona Fall League and at 344. So at Bowie uh, last year, he had a real solid year. But again, the average was a little on the low side, 230-ish. But he scored a lot of runs. He had a lot of extra base hits. He was a catalyst at the top of the order, solid in center. And when you would ask Buck Britton to name some key guys from the year, he would definitely name Ryan. And so because he, I mean, he's, his name is in the top 10 leaderboard in the Eastern League last year in several categories. So athletic, some skills, top of the order type. And so, uh, you know, now we're going to see when we get back to baseball, does he go to AAA? Is he knocking on the door at the major leagues? Yeah, 232 average. You mentioned it was low, lower than his personal expectations. He mentioned that when we were down there for the playoff games in Bowie uh, at the end of the year in September. He had nine homers, just a 686 OPS, and a poor finish. He didn't homer and had only seven RBIs and hit 227 in 29 games in September. But he's very athletic, you mentioned, in center field, and he brings a bit of speed, which, look, the Orioles have not had, at least at the major league level and definitely in the farm system, in forever, it feels like. So to see guys like McKenna, Adam Hall, at least show flashes of being able to steal bases at some point down the line, um, I feel like that that could be a good thing as well. Of the athleticism, I mean, he had some guys in, uh, at least in the, the buoy level, uh, that were competing with him in terms of center field. Cedric Mullins obviously got down there midseason. Um, he's fast enough to play center. Do you think McKenna is a, is fast enough, athletic enough to stick at center if he makes it up to, ma- to the major leagues, or would he have to be pushed to a corner? I think so. He may have a hard time overcoming Austin Hayes, who may have inherited that job for now. But, yeah, um, you know, one thing about him, scouts have told me over the years, sometimes they think he gets too big at bat. He's trying to drive the ball over the wall, and that's really not his game. He's more of a gap-to-gap hitter. But he did hit nine home runs in Bowie, but still, I don't think he should plan on – if he played every day in the major leagues, I don't think he should worry about hitting 15 homers. It would be more about getting on base, using that speed, gap-to-gap. Uh, gap. You know, he might be a guy, Paul, down the road that profiles as a good fourth outfielder because he can play all three positions, he brings some speed – athleticism, he would be a good late-inning guy or a guy who's a double switch if it's a National League, something like that. But I'm, I'm sure he has higher visions than that, and the Orioles do too. I mean, you always start out with a prospect thinking, what's the high end here? Could he be my everyday center fielder? And if he doesn't turn out to be that, then maybe you start to scale it back over time. But uh, so the future's there for Ryan. He's going to have an opportunity. A lot of good outfielders in the system, and he is one of them. Speaking of those good outfielders, if you had to take all of the outfielders and that are still considered prospects by the Orioles, Austin Hayes, Yosniel Diaz, McKenna, where do you think he would rank in terms of just the prospects? Is he behind a Yosniel Diaz in your mind, at least? Uh, I think so, because Yosniel brings a potential impact bat. I mean, he could be a third or four hitter. If he tops out again, we're talking ceiling here. And when you talk prospects, you're aiming for the best they can be. So uh, we don't know if Diaz will, but if he does, I mean, he's again, that's a good arm in right field too. He's a well-rounded player. And I mean, I think they could project him being a 25 Homer guy, 80, 90 RBIs play solid D. I mean, maybe come, maybe kind of somewhat similar to what Santander can bring, although he's right. a switch hitter. Usniel's a right-hander who's probably, you know, he and Mullins are probably in a similar mode 
with how maybe scouts would see them. Gotcha. All right, let's move on to Hunter Harvey, who, as mentioned, did get a taste of the major leagues. It's weird. Hunter Harvey did not pitch very well in the minor leagues. He pitched at Bowie and Norfolk, then got the call up to the majors, and boy, did he shine. Uh, Six and a third innings, gave up just one earned run. Looked like with all the injuries that he has had, uh, the he really has not lost anything on his fastball velocity. 98.4 miles an hour is how fast his fastball was averaging. This is a guy, obviously, Steve, you have covered for many years. It's crazy to think he was drafted seven years ago, and it took him until 2019 to make his Major League debut, but it was a great story that he did make his Major League debut last year. It was a great story, and he had some great moments late last year, and and all of a sudden you hear fans say he's the closer for the Orioles and he's got like six major league innings <laughs> under his belt. That happened fast. Yeah. But, um, you know, Oriole fans, Paul, always envisioned Hunter pitching like he did when he got up to the big club late last year. And they just envisioned it as a starting role, you know, because that's what he was drafted to be in the first round in 2013. But as we know, he had the Tommy John surgery in 2016. And for a four-year period, 15 through 18, this is four seasons now. He pitched a total of 63 and two-thirds. That's four years. I mean, that's 15 innings a year on average. So that's crazy <laughs> how much time he missed, how much he was set back. But by the way, last year he pitched 82 innings, more than four years combined. And then the Orioles, I think, realized they couldn't go much beyond that because when they moved him to relief mid-year last year, like in June, I asked people with the club, are you doing this to limit his innings? Or are you curious to see what it looks like out of the bullpen? And they said both. You know, we know we got to limit his innings, but we're curious to see. And then they found out his velocity ticked up. As you said, he's throwing 100 at times, um, average of 98-something. He's striking out a lot of guys, and he's embracing it. He's loving it. He's like, wow, when I'm a starter, I have to think about setting up hitters, and I'm, can I go seven? And now I come in, and I'm just in attack mode. And then he had it in common with his dad, of course, who's a great major league reliever at one point. So he took to it. The results were good. And he's a relief pitcher right now. Could that change down the road? Maybe. But I think if they play baseball next week, Paul, he'd be a key member of the Oriole bullpen. Yeah, he threw that fastball to great success and threw it a ton. 69% of the time he was throwing that fastball. He also had a curveball, which averaged in the mid-80s. He threw that just 15% of the time, and he added a split-finger fastball that was 90 miles an hour on average. It feels like that fastball, the fact that he you know, doesn't have a huge repertoire of pitches, but has a blistering fastball as well as an off-speed to offset it, feels like that might favor him as well if he sticks in the bullpen, because as a starter, you know you need four pitches, maybe even sometimes five, to get through a normal start. Whereas if he's coming out of the bullpen, whether it be as a closer or as a spot reliever, having fewer pitches almost is uh, a, you know a benefit to him. The split uh, change, the splitter, he threw some devastating splitters late last year. It just fell off the table at the plate. It was great to see. And if you take that at 90 with the 98-mile-an-hour fastball, that's a big difference for a hitter. You can elevate the fastball. You can bury the splitter. The splitter is a strikeout pitch, man. That's a one-two count. I'm putting you away with this. You're not even putting it in play. And, I mean, he did that at times. Um, I remember he had that incredible game at Nats Park. Yeah. He pitched out of a bases loaded jam in the late innings. And, oh, by the way, the Nats 
from that day forward, pretty much would be nothing but a great late inning team, including <laughs> all the way to the world title. Yeah. And, and here this kid gets them out in the late innings in their home ballpark to win a game. It wasn't a big game for the Orioles because they're out of it. But I think it was a big game for Hunter against a really good lineup. And so uh, he had a bit of a coming out party. It was only a handful of innings at the major league level, but it's not like he did something that shocked us because all along people expected potential greatness from this kid. And so uh, on top of that, he's got a great mullet. What's what, what, what's, what's not to like about Hunter Harvey? Yeah, no, he was called Joe Exotic um, by Dwight Smith Jr. recently as well. So he fits that strange mold as, as well. That's going to stick. Yeah, but it does, it does seem like um, – he does. I mean, he's as you mentioned, he's the son of a former major leaguer. Um, it seems like he has the kind of cool, calm demeanor that is necessary, not only of a major leaguer, but of a, a reliever as well, because mm-hmm. he, he's kind of got a slow heartbeat, it seems like, doesn't get phased uh, too much. You've known him for a long time. Does that kind of fit Hunter Harvey's personality? Yep, it does. I remember interviewing this kid at Delmarva, Paul. And his, he was wise beyond his years. He was a year or two out of high school. And I was talking to him about the process. I know you don't want to get ahead of yourself, but do you want to be in Frederick? What about Bowie? You know, trying to think ahead. And he was he was kind of, uh, you know, he was just very calm about it. He was like, hey, there's a process here. There's things I got to learn here and develop and grow. And I got to use my time well here. And I just thought, man, this is an intelligent kid who's not that far out of high school. He's talking like a 10-year veteran. And that comes from being around his dad, I'm sure, and being around ballparks. You know, he met Brandon Hyde when he was like eight, and Brandon was managing his brother, Chris Harvey, in the South Atlantic League in Greensboro. Really? That's the first time Hunter Harvey and Brandon Hyde met when Brandon managed Hunter's brother. Wow. Who never made the the majors, but it's another of his role models. Hunter told me when he was going through – Recovery from Tommy John, his dad and his brother were so critical to him in terms of encouraging him, supporting him. You know, you're going to get through this, and um, it's a close-knit family. Awesome. Well, it was, I mean, honestly, at this point, considering how well he did in the major leagues, Orioles fans, feels like those expectations are close to where they were several years ago because now we've seen a taste of just how good he can be but overall I feel like it is just a win for him to get to this point I mean for him to just make his major league debut considering all that he's been through and the amount of time he has spent in the Orioles system for him to just get there I think is a is an accomplishment uh unto itself no doubt and I mean here this is was an elite High school talent. He was known across the country for his pitching talents when he was 16, 17, 18. You never had a health issue. You're on top of the world. Then you get into pro ball, and all of a sudden, that's all you're dealing with. Yeah. And remember, he had a sh- one year he got hit by a comebacker in spring training. It hurt his shin. Yeah. He had a hernia issue at one point. I mean, this kid had all kinds of things go wrong, and he always stayed upbeat, and his father wouldn't let him get down or his brother. Um, and he, you know, it's hard, man. For four years, he pitched 60 innings. Yeah. I mean, you want That's to do that in a stat. couple of months, right? Yeah. So, I mean, uh, think about how much time he didn't play. And uh, he didn't he get hit in the dugout at Bowie one year on the arm or something? I think something like that. I mean, he has had a ridiculous list of, of medical maladies over the years. And they're gone now. And knock on wood for him. <laughs> 
that uh, that's that's true forever because uh, yeah, the, the talent was never in doubt. It was always for the last two years. If Hunter can stay healthy, he can be a key player for the Orioles and. We got a glimpse of it, so now the Orioles want a bigger glimpse. Yeah, exactly. I think he was almost one of those guys that Orioles fans started to expect that he was never going to come back, and so now to get him back is it was a, a joy, um, at least to see him make his major league debut. Steve, thanks so yeah, much. Yeah, you know, be, oh, go ahead. Beyond, I was going to just say one more thing, Paul. Beyond the, all the stuff we've talked about, mm-hmm. this kid fits in so well with the team. Yeah, uh, and I think again, this goes back to his, his background with his dad. He walked into a major league clubhouse and he found the right tone. He believed he belonged, but he also was deferential to the scene, to the veteran guys, the older guys, and they like to crack on him and he'll crack back a little bit. (laughs) But it's just like you can just tell this kid found the right tone in that clubhouse. He belongs in there. He fits in beautifully. And uh, then he starts throwing 108 innings. So that's not bad either. Yeah, Harvey would have been one of the brighter spots at the Orioles Major League roster in 2020, and hopefully we still get to see him at some point this year come out of the Orioles bullpen. Steve, thanks so much. Now we welcome in Jason Drumheller on the Mass and All Access podcast, who is a graphic designer and big-time Orioles fan. Jason, thanks so much for hopping on here. Thanks for having me on, Paul. Appreciate it. So, Jason, you started doing Orioles graphics. You were a professional graphic designer. You started doing O's graphics way back in 2018, more as a passion project than anything you were getting paid for, and then it turned into something that you ended up getting paid for. But that 2018 season, kind of a tough time to be doing Orioles graphics, and your graphics kind of reflect that as well. Some... Uh, you could say snarky, but I think it's it comes off as frustrated fan. Uh, what kind of graphics did you produce during 2018 and that whole season and the, the slow start that they got out to and the way that it kind of tumbled down? You were reflecting that in the graphics that you were creating on your social media platforms. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and when that season started, um, I didn't even set out with the goal to kind of do something for the entire season. It was just... Uh, they come out on opening day, Adam Jones hit the walk-off home run, um, opening day, they won three to two in extra innings. And I felt inspired to, uh, put together a post and throw that up on Instagram. And, you know, they had kind of a decent start at the beginning of the year. And I, you know, I subsequently was posting, uh, graphics that reflected that. And usually it was things about, you know, like, uh, player highlights or a final score or whatever. And then obviously, as you said, as we all know, uh, 2018 sort of took a, a different turn. <laughs> and uh, the, the graphics that I started to make also, I guess, kind of took a little bit of a turn. Um, you know, it's, uh, as I've said, it's, it's easy for people to maybe misconstrue uh, my work and think I'm not a fan, but I'm very much a fan. I've been a fan almost all my life. And as you said, uh, a lot of that frustration just sort of came out uh, from 2018. You know, lots of losses. (laughs) A lot of the things that I ended up making kind of took on a little bit more of uh, an editorial tilt. (laughs) And, uh, you know, just talking about, um, you know, the losses and, um, you know, throwing up some of the historically bad statistics that were happening that season that were just really hard to deal with as a fan, you know, and still kind of remembering the the 14 years of straight losing season. So, you know, that hangover still is 
you know, I think all of our sort of subconscious, you know, so it was, it was a tough season to watch. Yeah. And then it turned into you producing graphics for the, some of the greatest moments in franchise history. So completely on the opposite spectrum. How did that come about? Because I'm sure Orioles fans have seen your work, whether they know it or not, walking around Oriole Park at Camden Yards, the gigantic graphics and banners that are along the outside of the concourse. How did the project come about that you got to do those before the 2019 season began? Uh, just really craziness. Um, the, the Orioles had decided that they wanted to make some upgrades to the like environmental design of, of the stadium. So, you know, everybody saw like the improvements that they made the bar, uh, Boog's barbecue and just all along that lower concourse with all the concession stands and the murals and the banners that are hanging up. Um, they hired, the Orioles hired an agency in Asheville, North Carolina, Project 13, uh, to handle all of this work. And the creative director of Project 13 just happened to be on Instagram uh, looking around at Orioles work and came across my work and was like, Oh my gosh, this guy, we've got to get him involved. And, uh, and his presentation deck to John Angelos and the team there at the Orioles, he had a slide or two of some of my work. And I was like, this guy works in Baltimore. He clearly loves the Orioles. We need to get him involved. And he shot me an email and, uh, told me about, the banners that needed to be designed. And it was just, you know, for me, it was a huge thrill. I've been in this business for a long time. Um, you know, I still get excited about certain things, but you know, that one for sure is at the top of my list for, for projects that I got to work on. So really happy, uh, that that just kind of dumb luck, you know, that he, he found my work and got me involved. And those graphics depict so the 11, I believe, greatest moments uh, in terms of Orioles franchise history. Were those moments that you picked, were those moments that the Orioles picked? Um, how did those get uh, decided? Uh, those were decided amongst the, the Orioles. We met with Bill Stetka, who is kind of the team historian there. And uh, when I first met with him, he had a printout of probably five or six sheets filled each page with, you know, great Oriole moments through history, you know, and you're looking through all these. And at the time, I think, I think it was going to be more than 11 banners. I think maybe we were talking about 13, 14, 15, it, it was cut down to 11, but you know, you're looking at this list and I, I mean, it was like, okay, well, you guys are going to have to really sit down and think hard about what it is that you guys want to throw up there. Um, you know, there were obvious ones like 2131 and the world series wins. Um, you know, moments like that, that you knew we were going to have up there. Um, and uh, it, so it was trying to have a nice range, you know, the first game at Memorial Stadium, the last game at Memorial Stadium, the first game at Camden Yards. Um, and we wanted to have uh, some newer moments. So we've got a couple of the uh, playoff. Well, really, I guess they're both from 2014 when they won the division. And then um, the uh, Delman Young double game, against Detroit. Yeah. Yeah. And there are even some like Mike Flanagan, uh, the last pitcher at Memorial stadium, uh, yep. the start of Oriole magic is, or do you have personal memories from some of these moments as well, being a Baltimore resident and an Orioles fan for almost 30 years now? Um, well, the closest one is the 2131. 
Um, I, I didn't get there for that game, but I was there the night before when he tied it. And that was amazing. Wow. Um, uh, I can still remember as a kid, uh, when the Orioles won the world series in 83 and remember going to school, I went to a school where I had to wear a blazer and a tie to, to school. And that day I didn't wear my blazer. I wore my Orioles jacket <laughs> going into school. You know, I was like, man, this is great. We're going to do this every year. You know, we have Eddie, we've got Cal, this is going to be awesome. And yeah, you know, here we are still waiting. Uh, but uh, <laughs> that was great. Um, you know, in the playoff, the playoff games in 2014, um, I, I did make it to some of those games uh, that year too. So um, those are the ones I probably have the most connection to. Yeah. Personally. What I, I love about your graphics in particular, I do a little graphic design work on the side. Nothing nearly as close to what you do, but all of your graphics have a certain style and, you know, they all really represent kind of this consistent style that you have. I know there are a lot of people out there that do graphic design, either, either amateur graphic design just on their own for fun or do it professionally. But I'm curious as to how you develop that style um, and how you really decided, all right, these are the certain elements that I want to hone in on and, and use consistency consistently as you uh, make these graphics. Uh, when I first started um, in 2018 making those graphics, I had right before opening day, just gone and bought some old programs and the old world series yearbook from 1966. And, you know, was flipping through all these cause I had so many great like vintage ads that were in there. Um, and that was the sort of in the back of my mind when I started making these and it, that first year, 2018, they kind of had a little bit of a cardboard baseball card feel to them. Um, so I was drawing a lot of inspiration from that, um, early on. And then I've kind of migrated away from that and try to get them not to be quite so, uh, vintagey. Um, but you know, both typography, uh, uh, yeah, typography, good photography, if I can find it, that's also kind of a trick. If, uh, you know, I, I usually have to use Google to sort of scour for my imagery. And if I can't really find what I'm looking for, then, um, just won't use it or make it. Um, but that, you know, the, the Orioles have great colors, black and orange really go well together, white. So it's just a lot of bold color, bold type and um, trying to have a message. You know, there's a lot of young designers that are on Instagram and Twitter that are uh, probably can do circles around me in terms of Photoshop skills um, and are really great at kind of compositing these really awesome images, but there's not a whole lot of concept behind them. Um, and that's the thing with the Oriole work that I try to infuse at least some kind of, um, uh, meaning to them. That's what I was saying earlier, you know, some of them take kind of a little bit more of an editorial slant. So it's less about, let me see how I can trick this out, you know, in Photoshop and more of just something that's kind of bold, you know, maybe has a little bit of elegance to it um, and also has a message. Yeah, it does almost sometimes feel like you're seeing the front page of a, an old-timey newspaper um, with the bold text and it, it jumps out to you. Yeah. Do you have a favorite one of the Orioles graphics that you've made? You've said it's kind of like choosing between your children, but is there one that, that sticks out to you, whether it be snarky or whether it be one that you did of the 11 great moments at, at uh, in terms of uh, at Camden Yards? Oh, well, the, in terms of the banners that um, are up in Camden Yards, I think the magic 
banner with Doug DeSensei from 79 is up there and uh, the Frank Robinson one, which actually I've got back here in the background here um, where he hit a home run completely out of Memorial stadium. <laughs> uh, yeah. Ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so uh, those are probably banner wise. Those are, those are a couple of my favorites for sure. And, um, and I, you know, the posts, um, sure. There's some where, you know, uh, they probably aren't the most positive ones. There was some, <laughs> a couple, um, uh, the first year in 2018 where, um, you know, I've got the outfielder who's kind of fallen on his face. He's doing a little bit of a scorpion on the ground, you know, and it says, this is Birdland," and they had their record at the uh, all-star break, which yeah. was really not good. You know, but it just sort of encapsulated perfectly what the season had become. You yeah. Know? And so there, there are things like that that kind of make me laugh when I do it. And I realize probably if the players or anybody actually saw it, they probably wouldn't think too favorably <laughs> of it. But, um, you know, there are a lot of other ones that I try to do where, uh, you know, I call out, uh, you know, Adam Jones had a couple of uh, good highlights from that year that, um, you know, I try to. Uh, celebrate and last year when Trey Mancini was having such a great run leading up to uh, the all-star break you know I made some all-star graphics you know he's the Mancini for the job yeah. you know vote for Trey and all these kind of things so I had some fun kind of making little uh, election buttons and uh, graphics around that so um, that was also kind of cool yeah those were awesome I think because uh, I noticed in a few of them you put them around Baltimore uh, graphically, at least you put some of them on the side of, uh, the warehouse. I had to do yeah. a double take to make sure that it wasn't actually printed and posted on the side of the warehouse. Um, but I had, it, I had people ask. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It did look like a, uh, like a true election campaign. Um, it, it, and it, that was awesome. Um, so as with all fans going through this right now, you're a Baltimore resident, you usually probably by this point, I would think, uh, you know, have gone to a game at least or seen them all on Masson at this point. How are you coping without baseball and without sports in general? Because you do graphics for uh, football. You do graphics for basketball. How are you doing graphics and getting through when there are no sports to do graphics of? Ooh, yeah, well, <laughs> it's the uh, fortunately this, uh, you know, the football college football season in my day job, I work for agency HZ uh, Hirshhorn Zuckerman. Um, and we have a couple of college football clients um, at AZ, uh, TCU football and University of Maryland football. So those seasons had kind of basically come to an end. So we were good in that regard in terms of making graphics uh, for those guys, even though uh, I just did a couple of things for TCU for the NFL draft, but at least they, they still were able to pull off the draft. Um, some of the NBA stuff, you know, I'm a big NBA fan, so I'll just make things um, – for the heck of it, uh, you know, in that regard with my free time and with the baseball, it's killing me. You know, I mean, I think all of us would love to just either, I think would have NBA playoffs going on right now if everything was okay. And obviously we'd be into the baseball season. And yeah. Some of these scenarios that I've heard about, you know, playing ever all the games in Arizona. And now, uh, you know, the story coming out about these sort of regional divisions, you know, where, you know, we're going to be paired up with, uh, the Yankees and the Nationals and Red yeah. Sox and all of us are just, you know, one big happy division. I mean, that's going to be wild and crazy if they do something like that. Um, 
definitely caught a couple of the mass and replays. I was at the, the Cal uh, statue game. Oh, wow. Uh, back when that game took place and they were just replaying that uh, the other day yeah. on, on our social channels. That was probably one of the best games I've ever been to. So that was <laughs> kind of fun to go back and reminisce with that. But yes, I would love to be able to get some actual game action going on. Everybody yeah. Yeah, and the you can the sooner we have baseball, the sooner you can do graphics with pictures and all that good stuff of actual yeah. stuff to do. I um, need some content. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, awesome. Well, where can we find you? Uh, your work on Instagram, on Twitter, um, on your website, all that good stuff. Uh, my website is jasongrumheller.com. Uh, on Instagram, you can find me at jsdrumheller. And on Twitter, you can find me at J Drumheller. Unfortunately, the JS was taken on Twitter and <laughs> J Drumheller was taken on Instagram. So I have two different handles, uh, you know, just one letter apart. So awesome. Well, Jason, thanks so much for hopping on here. We'll get baseball back at some point and uh, we'll uh, look at your graphics in the meantime. So I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Back in Sarasota in February, I had a chance to catch up with Felipe Alou Jr., who is the director of the Orioles Dominican Academy. Here's that interview. We're at the Buck O'Neill Complex, and we're here with Felipe Alou Jr., who is the director of the Orioles Dominican Academy. Felipe, thanks so much for joining us here on Mass and All Access. Thank you. I'm glad I'm glad being with you. Thanks, thanks for having me. So we got to start with your family because you obviously come from a very important baseball family. Let's go back to your father, who was the first Dominican player to play regularly in the big leagues. What does it mean to carry on the Alou name, especially considering you're Felipe Alou Jr., named after your father? Um, you know, first of all, it's a blessing um, being able to, you know, born inside a clubhouse because that, that's that's what it was. You know, so I was a little kid. I was I was just running around clubhouses, um, Montreal and um, the Dominican and all that kind of stuff. But definitely uh, to to carry our family name. Um, proudly but also I understand the the weight of it because of what they done what my dad did I know he played in an area where those guys have to really push it back there and he lay out the way for so many Dominicans uh, and then you know my brother Moises and now my brother Luis so yeah. so yeah it's a big weight on your shoulders you can say but also like I mean you care carry it so proudly. I'm glad you mentioned your brother Luis. Of course, you were in New York for his introductory press conference as the new manager of the New York Mets. What was it like to see your brother named the new manager of the Mets? Pretty surreal, honestly. Um, going back to our uh, years when we were kids, playing around the house and playing you know, games and watching TV and knowing uh, what he's done throughout his um, minor league career as a manager. Uh, knowing that he pays his dues, like he developed as if he was a player, and getting this big opportunity now, I mean, it's, it's pretty surreal. I know he's pretty excited. Uh, we are all as a family. My dad, like he thinks he's, he's managing again. <laughs> uh, yeah, he's always, uh, he's always on the phone with him and all that stuff. And he lives in Florida. He makes sure like he spends time with him. But definitely, definitely um, pretty, pretty surreal. And of course, your dad, as you mentioned, was a manager as well. Why do you think this family has been attracted to managing as well as playing? <laughs> I wouldn't say there's a there's a, an specific uh, answer. Um, you know, my dad played baseball for so many years, and back then, 
Uh, when he ended up his playing career and went back home, he was like, oof, I probably need a job. You know, I have kids. And <laughs> yeah. Him and a few former players started what they're called now the Dominican Summer League, mm-hmm. which it was, it was going uh, from country to country uh, inside the Dominican. That's how he started managing. He started managing those teams and, and playing a little bit and uh, got the opportunity to do um, winter ball and uh, then do the minor leagues, and and here we are. <laughs> How important do you think it is to have that Dominican Summer League, which now has exploded? And, of course, we're going to get into your work with the two Orioles teams, but the fact that there is a presence there and it is so strong now and it is connected with the major leagues, how important is the DSL? Uh, very important. I don't need to tell anybody, but for, I mean, over the years, how many good Dominican players and Latin players have, you know, come to play baseball in the States, not only in the big leagues. Yeah. I mean, because the big leagues is, 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 I would say, is a very small sample of all the guys that are talented that can play the game. Um, but, yeah, the Dominican uh, is a culture to, to play ball and to have a league that um, besides playing during the summer that uh, operates years around, year around, because you also do your, you know, instructional league and uh, you do your little spring training and some standard spring back there. So, yeah, to have something in the DR and for us um, to, with the commitment that, that, that we're doing now, it's huge, man. Two teams, about 35 players on each roster. You manage one of those. How has the Orioles' presence in the Dominican changed since Mike Elias has taken over within the past year? 360 degree change, no doubt about it. Last year, when we went back to um, having two teams, I know the deadline was a little tight, but we had the resources and we had the people, you know, Mike and uh, Kobe Perez, to to make it happen. You know, um, they did their job, per se, to, to bring in the best talent available at the time and put the best people to go get that talent. And uh, it show on the field, show. We uh, fill up two teams uh, in a short period of time with good young talent, a whole bunch of, you know, 16, 17, 18 year old kids that I would say 20, 30, 40% of those kids are gonna be here this summer. So, which is, which is a huge step forward uh, in our organization. And these kids are 17, 18 years old. How important is it to develop them at that age? Because a lot of their talents are pretty raw at that point, but it's your job and the job of others like you to develop those talents. Um, very important. These kids, they live home before 16 years old. But sometimes they're, they, they're helped by this Busconis down there. So they might leave their houses at 14. Or you had to even out between, you know, these kids still learning how to play baseball, but he also... He left home at a young age, so you you, you got to be a parent yeah. too. And uh, yes, teaching these kids the everyday grind uh, to become a young successful man, mm-hmm. not only a, a ball player but a man. It's definitely a grind for us as as well as coaches. I mean, because raw talent, perfect. Yeah, you know, you want that. You want a raw talented. 16 year old kid but you got to understand too that sometimes this kid didn't didn't got the education that you would want a 16 year old kid to have and it's not their fault it's just i mean they're trying to follow this dream 
that's a huge thing in the Dominican because now you can provide to your family. How much joy would you say that you get when you were able to get a kid to not only understand the fundamentals of baseball, but understand the fundamentals of putting in the work to become successful? Uh, believe me, it's, it's like if, if, if a kid of yours is just starting how to read. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's the way it is. I mean, because you get this kid so young and, like you said, so raw and so, like, open-minded. You know, they want to hear from you 24-7. Uh, I want to be around you. They want, you know, they'll text you. I had kids text me at night or, in the, you know, during the summer last, last year. Hey, how you doing? Hey, I think I'm doing, you know, thank you for everything, which is pretty cool. I mean, yeah. you treat them like your own. That's, mm -hmm. that's the way it is. But um, being able to watch them grow and watch them, you know, develop and watch them learn uh, every step of the way of, is a huge uh, feeling. And you've worked with Kobe Perez in the past. Do you like working with him? And how has this been working together with the Orioles now? Well, I met Kobe a long time ago. We always ran into each other. We actually play a little bit of um, Little League Baseball together. Really? So we've known each other for a long time. And I, it was always a pleasure because I knew what kind of person he is. Soft-spoken, he, he knows what he wants. He's pretty solid at what he does. He's done it for a long time. And now, like, you know, being able to work with him 24-7, collaborating with our international department scouting player development is awesome. It's awesome. awesome. You know, line of communication is great. Uh, when he's in town, he's, he's at the academy. Uh, he's making sure we know where they're at, depending what they want to accomplish as a department, and same, same with us. It's been the same pleasure as it was before, you know, working with Kobe. And this spring, you're getting to spend this time here at the Buck O'Neill Complex. You're right up the road, of course, from Ed Smith Stadium in the Orioles, you're getting to work with all the minor league coaches and players here. What has this experience been like this spring? Pretty cool so far. Um, I know we added uh, Matt Blott over mm -hmm. the winter. He's got a lot of um, new ideas. I know we added several coaching staff uh, as well. And uh, I know our, our, the way our big league camps operating too, uh, with the people up there. So far, it's been pretty fun. Like I said, uh, new tools to work with, new toys to work with. And honestly, just looking forward to you know pick up from it and hopefully you know, uh, bring as much as we can to the VR and introduce it to our kids. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to, to stop by in an early morning here at Buck O'Neill Complex. We appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Be beautiful morning. Felipe Alou Jr. joining us here on a beautiful morning here in Sarasota, Florida. So we got for the Mass and All Access podcast today. We got episodes coming out every Wednesday. Be sure to rate, subscribe, review. You can catch the Mass and All Access podcast on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, watch it on YouTube, watch it on the Masson All Access Facebook page. And of course, it is brought to you by Marymount University. Visit MarymountSaints.com to learn more about our student athletes and programs today. I'm Paul Mancano. We'll see you later.